0: Hey there Jesper just dropping in here uh, up at the front of the episode. I have an excellent guest host on today but I just wanted to drop in here quickly to let you know that we had a bit of audio quality issues. The internet on my guest's end is not entirely stable and at one point about 18 and a half minutes in it actually drops which means that I cannot hear him and he keeps talking for a bit while I'm also talking on top of him, to uh, hoping hoping that he's coming back online. So you're going to get about one and a half minute where we accidentally talk over one another. So my apologies for that. And also when it comes to his internet connection, there is a bit static on his end. And uh, unfortunately, I've done everything I can to try to clean it out, but, but it's not possible to get it any better than it is now. But you can hear everything he says. So I've decided to release this episode anyway. So, I hope you will get a lot out of it. And uh, much, much apologies for the audio quality uh, here. Thank you.
1: You're listening to the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast. In today's publishing landscape, you can reach fans all over the world. Query letters are a thing of the past. You don't even need a literary agent, there is nothing standing in the way of making a living from writing. Join two best selling authors who have self published more than 20 books between them. Now, on to the show with your hosts, Autumn Burt and Jasper Schmidt.
0: Hello, I am Jasper, and this is episode 43 of the Am Writing Fantasy podcast. And we are going to talk about reviving dead books, meaning, how do you get books that does not sell to start selling again? And uh, as you've noticed, uh, Autumn is not with me today, but instead I actually have a guest host, and that's Stuart Damon, whose books have uh, reached interna- international bestseller status in the U.S., Australia, and Canada. So, welcome to the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast, Stuart.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And I, I actually understood uh, from a bit of our email conversations that. Did you spend a bit of time in? I was about to say in my part of the world. Well, I think it was in Germany, and I'm in Denmark, but it's close. Pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I was, was in, in uh, central, central Germany, Germany.
2: Went to college in Würzburg, so been a, a decent amount of time in Europe.
0: Ah, okay. Würzburg. Where, where, where in Germany is that?
2: It's basically dead in the center of Germany. So it's uh, sort of a little bit to the east of Frankfurt, probably the nearest uh, landmark, but not too, not too far, far from Munich and. Honestly, you can get anywhere from the center of the country. So got to travel around a good amount as well.
0: Ah, nice, nice, nice. So you were there for several years then?
2: Uh, yeah, for a good bit of time and uh, really, really enjoyed it. I, I love the food. I love the climate. Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful, a wonderful place, place to live.
0: live. Ah, cool. Very cool. But uh, but I think you're back in the U.S. now, right? Yep.
2: So living in uh, Kentucky, which is uh, in the Midwest of the United States. So
0: Right. Okay. And... Uh, Actually, before we get into the whole uh, conversation about reviving dead books, which which I guess you've made a bit of a specialty out of. But before we get into that, I I also noticed that you're writing some lit RPG books. And uh, I know that that's a genre that has been a bit, uh, I don't know if you can call it hot, (laughs) but uh, I I have understood that it's it's something that... um, that is selling quite well in general, but but it's also I think a bit of a special genre to write. So I was just wondering if you could, you know, just share a bit of insights about what is lit RPG and and how do you go about writing it? Because I think it's a bit different, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's a, a very niche sort of uh, subgenre of fantasy and sci-fi. And, and really of any other genre you can sort of turn things into lit rpg but uh, it's been around for a while since ready player one came out quite some time ago but really got big when the ready player, ready player one movie, movie debuted a couple, couple years ago. ago and when that came out a lot of people started to get turned on to lit rpg and a lot of people will call it game lit as well and um, now the hardcore readers will will put some designations between game lit and lit rpg but typically uh, the whole concept behind the subgenre is you have a fantasy, sci-fi, a horror world, whatever it might be. But in that world, there exists the sort of mechanics of an actual video game. So uh, in, I've got three different lit RPG series now that have done pretty well. Uh, it's a, definitely a hot selling genre at the moment. And it's really uh, a lot of fun to write. As, and being a lifelong gamer, it's sort of like writing the video game that I wish I could play. And that adds a, a whole new dimension to the entire writing process, which is a ton of fun. But uh, really, really starting, starting to get popular um, in the past year or so, just sort of a genre that's blown up.
0: Right, but am I right in understanding that you're actually writing out stats for characters and stuff like that as well? Or
2: Exactly. So there will be uh, stats for the characters. They'll have like strength, agility, uh, the sort of traditional stats that you would expect from a video game they go on quests, they go on dungeon runs, they get magic gear, uh, every time they level up and you know gain experience points, they need to pick new talents and they're sort of building their their build more or less and kind of gives you that feeling of reading someone playing a really fun video game.
0: Right. So you're describing in the book itself what they're picking when they're leveling up and all that stuff? Yeah,
2: exactly and and why okay. they're making that decision and and uh, what they anticipate that decision might mean in the future, like you know, if I get this talent now, it should unlock these future talents, and uh, you can really uh, mentally envision the video game aspect of it quite well
0: wow that that's different it is <laughs> yeah and 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 quite it must also i mean I've never uh, read a book like that, but it must be quite a different reading experience as well because i, I assume I assume there's still a story in there, but but a lot oh, of I, it will then be broken up by these sort of well, non-story elements where you're just (laughs) learning what skills they're picking for leveling up and and stuff like that, right? Yeah,
2: it's very interesting because the story in some lit RPGs can honestly be secondary to the progression of the game and the progression of the character through the game. Uh, It just depends on which kind of lit RPG you're reading. But I got turned on to it just on a recommendation from someone. They they told me I should read Dungeon Lord by uh, Hugo Huesca.
1: And I read that
2: and just really, really, really liked it and I just thought like, this is the kind of fantasy, like I, I could write this. This is a lot of fun. And I uh, wrote my first one and took a while to to really get it good and, and to really perfect it. But uh, it's done really well. It's sold quite well and, well and
1: I'm really, really happy, happy about that. that. So
2: uh, definitely a lot of fun to write. And uh, my, my first one only took me 20 days cover to cover to write it. So uh, very, very fast writing it because it was simply so much fun to do.
0: But h- how long uh, uh, is a lit IPG novel in general? How many words is it? Yeah, I mean, typically the longer
2: the better. So my very first one was right around eighty thousand words. Uh, okay. My I've got two more that are coming out in November that are both over a hundred thousand words. So uh, the longer you can get them, the better. I'm mean, just like normal epic fantasy. People like to stay in that world as long as possible.
1: All
0: right. Okay, very cool. I, I was just curious about that. I know it's a complete detour <laughs> versus what we're going to talk about, but I was just curious.
2: Yep, very new <laughs> stuff.
0: Yeah. Okay, but uh, maybe we should get on topic uh, for the sake of the listener here as well. Um, so, yeah, I previously in the past I talked to Dave Chesson, who, who's uh, who was also on this podcast a while back. Uh, he's the guy who does the Publisher Rocket software. And uh, he mentioned, Stuart, that I should contact you because you have made it a bit of a specialty to revive dead books uh, and you're also doing it for traditional publishing companies as far as I understood. But but where do we start this whole conversation about how to revive a dead book if if the listener is in the situation where they have a book they've published but it's just not selling? Yeah, I think the the first thing to do is
2: just identify the quality of the product itself, which could be pretty difficult. And it kind of requires you to step back with an unbiased eye and try not to look at the book as, oh, this is, you know, my baby that I've worked on for so long and my project that I've had, you know, sort of living in my heart for so long that I really want to succeed. And really the first step is just to look at the product as just a product that you're selling to consumers like anything else. If you Ran a pizza shop or whatever, you would look at the quality of the product that you're selling and see where you can improve that. So, not every book is really, you know, ready to be revived or anything like that. Um, Definitely not. There are a lot of books out there where the quality, you know, maybe it's something you wrote 10 years ago and it's just not that great. And, you know, if you can recognize that, it'll save you a lot of time and money and frustration. I've got books that I now call dead books where I've buried those books because the quality just wasn't that good. And I'm not going to waste money trying to revive it myself. But um, then I've got other books that I wrote a long time ago, released that did not do as well as I wanted that I have gone back and revived. And then, um, you know, working for different publishing companies, I've done exactly that. But the first step is really, especially if you have a big catalog, identify a good candidate. So you need something with good writing unless you really want to you know, drop another couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollars into the uh, editing costs as well. But you want to make sure you have something that's got a, a good enough backbone essentially to where you can improve it enough and, and revive it and, and it'll actually be worth it. Uh, but mm-hmm. figuring out which book that is in your catalog should really be step one. So really the thing with the strongest writing that didn't sell that, that the non-selling factor was a surprise. That's, that's probably step one for sure.
0: Right. Yeah. And that, of course, makes sense. But but the thing or the question that popped up into my mind here when you said that is like, but it's not, I don't think necessarily that every author can recognize that themselves. So, so you know, of course, if you're doing it for a traditional author, uh, publisher and, and they give you some dead books that they could, you know, Stuart, can you please revive these for us? Then... You can approach this as the outside opinion that that takes a look at the book and say, okay, this is not up for, the, or, you know, this is not good enough or, or whatever. Uh, maybe that sounds a bit harsh, but but you know what I mean. Uh, but if it's the author who who's supposed to do it on his or her own books, um, do you think that's possible to do, or do you need somebody from outside to take a look?
2: It's definitely difficult, and I, I think as I I've, have worked a little bit as a um, professional editor and proofreader as well, and uh, worked in acquisitions for a publisher for quite some time, reading through manuscripts in the slush pile and that kind of thing. So I, I think, think that, that gives me a, a little advantage and a little, little better perspective, perspective where, you know, I'm not attached to even my own writing as much as someone else might be, but I, I think that's a skill that people can develop. If you look at something, especially if it's been a while since you've actually sat down to write it, uh, you'll find oftentimes, at least in my experience, that even if I loved a book in the moment I was writing it and I was really, really into it, thought it was going to be fantastic, going back and rereading it, I can look and say, like, oh, this just, you know, it's just not my best work. I've advanced as an author. I'm better than this now. And this just doesn't really do it for me. Um, And I think that's a, a skill that people can develop. But Honestly, I, I think there's a lot of editors out there that should be able to take a manuscript from someone if you send it, and you know, maybe they charge you 100 bucks or whatever, but just ask the editor, you know, for their outright opinion, say, do you think this is good enough for me to publish, you know, from the stuff you've seen that you've edited, um, you know, editors, a lot of times will follow how well their books do that they edit, and, you know, look at it and say, hey, if I were to try to revive this, do you think it's worthwhile? And and just trying to get an honest answer that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and I think what I've often said before is that uh, you need to be careful because what happens a lot of the time is that, of course, with every single book that we write. The better we become. Yep. So you 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 need to be careful also that you you don't step into this never-ending spiral of you know because you can always go back and rewrite some older books and make them better. Exactly. But you need to really ask yourself: Is it worth it? Because the amount of time that you're spending rewriting is is quite uh, you know it, it's it's quite an investment of time to do that versus if it's just a cover that is off, you know, that's a much easier fix to, to see. So I, I was just wondering, because my, I was thinking that if I was gonna approach it, rewriting was, unless I for sure knew, of course, that this is just not good enough, then it's it's a given ob- obviously that you need to do that. But I was just thinking from a time investment perspective, I think that the re- rewriting part would probably be the last thing I would do. I would probably try out all the other elements first or or, or what, what do you say yeah, about that?
2: If- If it's a book where you can simply declare like this is a a book that needs rewritten, my recommendation would be just shelf it. And if you have that time later in the future, go for it. But for 90% of us, we're not going to have that much time. So just, you know, pick a different book to try to revive. Or oftentimes I've found it's, it's even easier just to write the next one and just sort of forget about it and, you know, leave that book as dead. But um, really the, the, best you know reviving the dead books is if you can go through that back catalog maybe you've got four or five or six books that really aren't selling and just pick out you know find the one that has the strongest writing Uh, the one that is the best that you know maybe it needs a proofread something like that um, but it doesn't need a whole lot of work to the actual manuscript in order to get it ready to go.
0: Right. And of course, uh, well, maybe there won't be many reviews on it if, if it if it is really a dead book and has always been a dead book. But but if you do have some reviews, I think that's also a place where you could go to, to get some hints if, if it really needs another editing yeah. pass and you know if there's complaints about too many typos and whatnot.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I definitely agree with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I was also thinking in terms of, the look inside part you know f- from the amazon how much attention are you are you placing on making sure that those first uh, i think if i mem- remember correctly i might be a bit off on this but i think it's 10% of the book or something Somewhere like that there you, at
2: least yeah, yeah.
0: So, so the first 10% i think you you can see uh, uh, from the look inside or the free sample on amazon but how much attention are you putting on making sure that those 10% are really engaging yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely a part where you need, need to hook, hook the reader. reader.
2: So not every reader, of course, is even going to look in on that feature or even know that feature exists. But it's definitely a part um, and that that some people do pay attention to. And I think a lot of other authors will start there. If you know, if you've written before and you're, you're looking, looking for new material, material to read yourself, <laughs> then it's an area where we're gonna look. But it, it's gotta be, of course, you know, professional formatting and a lot of times like when I work for different presses. I'll go into their material and I'll see, okay, these books were made in you know 2010 or 2014 and the formatting just you know, back then wasn't as good and they've gotten a professional formatter now, or whoever there's whoever is doing their formatting has simply gotten better. And so we just need to update this, run the manuscript through the formatting again as though it were brand new and get it updated, get it out there in the professional quality that the other more modern books are used to receiving. And and that can be definitely a big thing. But I think just from a, a really from a story perspective, if you don't hook somebody in the first, you know, 10, 15 pages, if you don't get them absolutely invested, then there's so much other competition out there that readers will leave. And especially if you're trying to sell in Kindle Unlimited, you have to be even more um, sort of action heavy and really uh, punching it up well up front or you don't really have a chance because somebody in Kindle Unlimited, I mean, they didn't pay to download your book at all. If you don't get them committed and invested in the first 10 pages, they're just going to move on to the next book on their Kindle and you've lost them. So uh, definitely very important from a story perspective to have a really, really strong active opening that introduces you know, one or two characters, keeps the cast small, sets up the overarching conflict well, and really attaches the reader to those characters right out of the gate
0: yeah, fully fully agree. Um, so let' let's assume for now that that people sort of they they have the they have the the product itself, meaning meaning the book or or the writing itself is is up to par. So so that that stuff is good. They have a good uh, hook in the beginning. Uh, if if we assume that that is okay, then what about covers then?
2: Yeah, so the cover, of course, is a huge aspect of writing. And you know we all know the old phrases of not judging books by their covers. And yet we all do it every single time we buy a book. It's the first step of marketing. It's the first thing you see when you approach a book, whether it be online, on a bookshelf, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. The first thing, thing we see, our first impression, is always that book cover. And a lot of times what I've seen in some of the books that I have revived is that the cover just doesn't match the genre expectation. And if you're yes. you know, trying to sell a uh, a really you know intense suspense thriller and your cover just doesn't speak to me as a thriller. It could be a beautiful, gorgeous cover, but if it just doesn't meet the genre expectations of a thriller, then it's not going to sell well, no matter how good the cover is. So a lot of it is just looking at the you know top 100 covers in your genre, or pick you know ten or so competing authors that you're book is most similar to and you know you write thrillers look up Stephen King and Dean Koontz and look up those covers and see what they look like because even if you don't like that style that's what the reader expects and that's what the reader wants to see because the reader is going to be coming from Dean Koontz or Stephen King and they're going to be looking for more thrillers to read and if they see you know a thriller that matches what they like they're, they're going to, to buy it versus it. seeing a thriller that could have a gorgeous professional extremely good cover but if the cover to them says oh this is historical or horror or fantasy this isn't a thriller like i like then they're never going even to read your blurb and they're not going to get you know any farther than glancing at your cover and ignoring it and you lose that reader forever and that's an area where I see yeah. a lot and of things I'm presses glad you said that because really I, honestly, I think you spot on. That cover just doesn't the match genre at all what The genre expectation part
0: expect. is really, really important. And uh, you, you have to have a cover that really explains what the genre that's is the about connection. and uh, shows that no to no. the reader. And it's, it's not really it's about, that, uh, at out? the point in time when it comes to covers, it is not that's about. Not good. Being original, which a lot of us authors uh, can easily try to become or try to to achieve, we we try to be so original and we try to to make it so unique that uh, nobody has seen this before, and we we believe it's it's to be excellent. But in fact, that is not the case, uh, and that's not what we're looking for because readers are looking for something similar to what they're used to, and uh, by giving them a cover that that shows them that this is the genre you're getting and it's on par with or, or similar to, to other best-selling books in that genre, then that is how you are going to uh, to be successful from a, from a cover perspective. Okay. So so if that was all about covers, then um, I'm wondering the other element that also goes into whether or not a book will sell is uh, the, um, book descriptions. So so how do you or how do one uh, consider or evaluate if one's book description is good enough?
2: Yeah, I think in book descriptions and blurbs or a synopsis, it's a lot more difficult than with covers because covers you can compare to some of the uh, top selling covers in your genre and get a good idea. But blurbs are so unique to the book that it makes it a lot more difficult But with blurbs, they're very easy to change, especially on the electronic format. It's extremely easy to change. You can try out out a different blurb blurb every week until you get something that you really like. But a big mistake, at least, that I see with lots and lots of blurbs is authors try to just sort of tell you the plot. Here's what my book is about. And Mm -hmm. that seems logical, but it very, very rarely works. And really, the goal of any sort of book blurb or synopsis is not to tell the reader what the book is going to be about, but it is to tell the reader instead why they should look at the book and what they're going to be excited about. And really, what that comes down to is genre expectations, which is similar to the cover. And you want to just give them atmosphere. And you want them to think like, Oh, this is going to be a really cool, you know, intense mystery thriller, not, Oh, this is a a book book about a guy guy who's framed for a crime and and goes on the run and moves to Argentina. It should be a book, description that gives them just the atmosphere and sort of builds up that expectation in their head and then leaves them wanting more because if they, if they get the plot from the the book description, they don't need to to read the book anymore if they just get the atmosphere and the genre expectation, then they need to read the book in order to figure out what it's about, and I think mm-hmm. that can be a uh, a really powerful selling tool. But again, since it's so easy to just change the blurb essentially whenever you need to, pick five or six that you like, and you know test them on a, a writing group and you know on a subreddit or something like that. Um, test them out in a Facebook group for authors, see what people like. Pick the two or three that get the most votes. Try one for a week with your marketing plan. If it works, great. If not, switch to a different one. And you can really um, guess and check with blurbs pretty easy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it's it's sort of like thinking about the movie trailer. I mean, of, of course, not all movies trailers does a good job at being a trailer yeah. either. But, yeah. but it's, it, it needs to just tease the stuff. Uh, yeah. and, it, it, you don't tease. have to. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to tell much. You, you just, you just no. tease it. Uh, and and then yeah as you say I mean it, it fortunately enough it, changing the blurb is quite easy so uh, you can just upload a new one and, and see how it, how it performs and of course for you dear listener if, if you're struggling with that don't forget that uh, I actually have a guidebook called how to write a fantasy book description so you can pick that one up and uh, follow a step-by-step guide if, if you need some assistance on, on blurbs but uh, but I do think blurbs are incredibly important because if people, find if if you sort of have the writing under control and you have the cover under control meaning that it's genre specific like you talked about before Stuart. then people will then click but then when they click and get to the book page on for example amazon then the blurb is the one that needs to close the deal right
2: yep definitely
0: yeah and if you don't have that sorted then well you're still going to lose out the, the problem here I guess in in reviving these books uh, reviving these books as a, uh, that was what I was trying to say is that you have so you have quite a lot of moving parts here right I mean yeah. you, there's a lot of different elements that could be wrong that you need to evaluate
2: yeah there are a ton of variables and it, it can sometimes especially when you're looking at your own work it can be hard to pinpoint exactly what's wrong uh, but in the end, I, I think uh, if people really take a diligent look, it's not as hard as it seems to figure out exactly where there's room to improve.
0: Right. Yeah, and and, and sometimes it's probably also a matter of uh, if if you are really stuck, you know, maybe get some author friends to <laughs> to take a look for you or something Definitely. like that. And but, there's
2: tons of groups out there full yeah. of authors that don't mind giving advice to everybody else so there's the resources exist
0: yeah absolutely but but i was just thinking when i said that i also uh, thought of a caveat right away i guess that's that's the problem if you're trying to give advice and then start thinking about caveats right away but but the, the problem is also that sometimes the authors themselves are not the right people to judge this stuff because we think as authors and and it's difficult sometimes to put yourself in the mind of the reader, because just like you said with the covers, uh, the, the readers are looking for uh, something that signals to them that this is I know what I'm getting and this is what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. They're not looking for, "This is the most amazing original fantasy cover I've ever ever seen." you know That's not what they're looking for. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. and we can get well, I, I think sometimes by asking other authors, you can get into the same trap. That they will tell you their author opinion um and but of course sometimes you're going to get good advice from people who know what they're talking about i'm just it's just a word of caution i guess
2: Mm -hmm. i would agree a lot of authors uh, will make the same mistake as an author trying to revive their own work and they, they look through it from the wrong perspective
0: right but okay so if we have the writing we have the cover we have the book description then then what what else
2: it really, once you've got all that, you're you're pretty much ready to go. So, uh, you've you've got everything more or less uh, seated correctly. Uh, sometimes I've actually we've we've changed titles on books as well. So uh, we've had titles. Right. One that comes to mind that uh, is probably the most successful book revival I've ever done, um, and it, it was a really cool portal fantasy about a um, Japanese fighter pilot going back in time during World War II and going back to feudal Japan times and sort of becoming a sword and sorcery fantasy. And that book had a, a cover that said historical fiction to me. It had a title that was in Japanese, and I didn't even understand it, even though the book was in English. And uh, okay. the writing, we just needed a proofread. But uh, we changed that title to one that was very in keeping with uh, with sort of expectations and whatnot. The book's called Samurai Wind by Nigel Sellers. But uh, we we revived that and and got the new title on it, got a new cover on it and everything. And then really from there, the bulk of your work is finished and all you need to do is just find that audience and figure out where those people live. And with a samurai-themed portal fantasy with a little historical bend to it, honestly, that appeals to most fantasy readers already that's something that a lot of fantasy readers are going to really enjoy. So all you need to do is, is uh, then dive into your, you know, sort of traditional marketing approach. And uh, for me, that would be Facebook and Amazon ads, testing keywords, figuring out which keywords are getting your sales and then uh, pumping really as much of your budget as you can afford into those valuable keywords until they stop working and then reevaluating once those keywords fall off a little bit. But uh, once you get to the point where you've got, you know, the title, the cover, the blurb, and the writing, that is pretty much everything. You're you're more or less there and ready to market it again and and really rebrand the novel and and get people interested in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree, uh, and of course, then once you are at that stage, then you have the same problem that everybody else has, and that is to drive enough traffic there and and win those uh, bits and all that. But do you have any any good advice when it comes to to running some ads and getting getting the traffic to that book that you now know it's good and you know it should sell, but you just need to get eyeball eyes, eyeballs on it? Uh, do you have any advice on on how to best go about that? Uh, the advertising part of this uh, equation? Yeah, it's it definitely, definitely. Marketing, marketing books
2: is, is tricky and sort of the uh, the pitfall, I guess, of almost every author out there that I talk to. Um, on my website on stewardtaymanbooks.com, I've got a whole series of free articles about marketing that go in, in a lot more detail than uh, just a quick podcast. But, but essentially, essentially the, the biggest advice is spe- if you're using pay-to-click or, or yeah, pay-per-click ads, that's it. So if you're using those pay-per-click ads, uh, which I recommend, you just want to sort of start with the shotgun blast and and hit as much as you possibly can right out of the gate. And it's, it's going to be expensive make- to test, test and it's going to be a pretty steep learning curve. You'll need to know what you're doing. But if you set up, you know, maybe three or 4,000 different keywords on Amazon, which um, I use the, the publisher rocket as well, but uh, mm-hmm. set up 4,000 keywords and run those 4,000 keywords, which will be four different ads. But run them on, you know, three different ad copies and adjust your ad copy, you know, three different times, figure out which keywords are hitting and the combination might be something that's surprising. It might be something that you don't expect and you, you might, might have, have uh, uh, you know, a keyword with an ad copy that doesn't strike you as something that you would, you know, would work for you. But again, the author's not the customer. So you it's hard to think like a customer and we don't always understand the customers. Um, But really just sort of testing as much as physically possible for as long as you can to get enough data to be meaningful, then figuring out from that data, okay, what about this makes sense and where am I actually going to make money? Um, You know, kill those keywords that are just sucking down budget with no returns, kill those off real quick, figure out the, the ones that the keywords that are giving you the best bang for your buck. And then put more and more into those keywords or maybe try five or six different ad copies with each keyword to see what works the best. And eventually, you know, it might take you a month, but you'll pare it down to where you've got ads running that are going to be very profitable on either Facebook or Amazon, whatever it might be. You'll get ads that are are churning out a high rate of return.
0: Yeah, do you uh, tend to... uh, Bit high to, to, to get those, uh, or basically to revive the book, so to speak, you know, to get, to get the Amazon algorithm to pay attention to you, do do you tend to bid high, to make sure you're winning those bits or, or do you just bid so that you're sure that you're going to get a return on investment if you win the bits. So how, how do you go? How do, how do you go? About yeah. That? Bid setting is
2: it's definitely difficult. difficult. I'm not going to say I'm a master of that just yet. honestly, in the beginning, I, I like to set the bids higher just because I'm I'm kind of impatient when it comes to getting that data and figuring <laughs> it out. So I'll yeah. blast a lot of ads in the beginning that are going to cost a good bit of money and have pretty high bids just so I can get all that data and you know run through my budget every single day to make sure I'm I'm hitting it. And uh, once I get all that data, I'll tone it down and and most of the time, once I have an ad that's fairly refined, I'll just set it to the uh, Amazon recommended bid and and they do like the dynamic bidding where they'll adjust it for you up to like 50% of what you put in. So I'll put maybe 50 cents in. And so that'll let it adjust up to 75 cents if it needs to. Uh, And that seems to work pretty well. So you're not getting, you know, the prime time uh, bids, you're not winning those, but you're still at least, you know, winning enough bids to get a decent amount of impressions, a few thousand impressions or whatever it might be on each ad. And and that's really what you need. But once you pare it down, I think the the bid matters maybe less and less. And it it might be the case, case, uh, I've had it a few times where reviving an old book, I found that it wasn't any keyword that was even expensive that ends up being the winner. And it'll be some, Mm. you know, four cent keyword that nobody else is bidding on that I would have never thought in a thousand years would be relevant. But it was something that Publisher Rocket uh, pulled up in, in their list and I kept it in there and there it went. And so it'll be a really cheap uh, keyword, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, I know, I know Dave Chesson likes to share the example of, uh, of uh, what was it, book, book, book. I think that yeah. was the keyword he was using, just three times the word book in a row, which makes absolutely yeah. no sense at all. Who's
2: searching <laughs> that? Who types that in on Amazon?
0: Yeah, I don't understand. I, I don't I know don't what understand. they're
2: hoping to find when they search book. <laughs> book book but people do apparently and that keyword is typically cheap so you can grab it
0: yeah yeah indeed indeed okay well i think that that, that is uh, good in terms of reviving the book so so you, you certainly need to drive the traffic there and and all the usual stuff that we usually talk about is is of course also relevant in the sense that uh, if you make sure to write in series then of course you can afford to spend a bit more on on this uh, book one in the series that is dead uh, because hopefully people will now start reading through that and and like it because you just made sure that the product itself is good Uh, and then they'll buy the other books and and that will bring you back some revenue, meaning that uh, you will cover some of your ad spend. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, Stuart, uh, is there anything else that is important to know about uh, reviving dead books? that we haven't I think talked we about covered
2: yet. just about everything. Um, I, I guess as a last bit of advice, I would say uh, one of the biggest mistakes I see authors making is, is always with the cover and just the concept is actually a, a line that I read. Uh, I, think uh, like I think like two or three, two or three days ago, just came up, up. Uh, another author, up. author online mentioned that you're, when you look at a cover, you should not be looking for some flawless work of art. You should consider your cover to just be your first marketing tool. And even if it's a cover that you personally don't like, like if it fits, it fits in your genre, genre and it fits what readers want, use it. It doesn't matter if you like it or not because the paycheck is what, what the author's in it for. So it uh, doesn't have to be some you know, flawless work of art. You can always make a special edition later that's going to be your flawless work of art, but uh, you need to sell books first before you can afford that special edition. edition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned earlier on that that you had some articles or, or blog posts or whatever uh, that uh, goes into some of this. So if you send me the links to that, uh, Stuart, then I'll add those uh, links into the uh, show notes so yeah, sure. people can, uh, can go and read if they want.
2: Yep. Yeah, just Stuart Thamen Books is where you can find it all and we'll get those links up there.
0: All right, perfect. Okay, thanks so much for, for joining, Stuart. Yeah, thank you. So next Monday, autumn is back and we are going to talk about whether or not free books are worth it as a marketing strategy.
1: If you like what you just heard, there's a few things you can do to support the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast. Please tell a fellow author about the show and visit us at Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. You can also join Autumn and Jasper on patreon.com slash amwriting fantasy. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get awesome rewards and keep the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast going. Stay safe out there and see you next Monday.